Good morning. Uh, if everyone could find their way back to their seats. Um, we're going to start reading some scripture. If you don't have a Bible to follow along with us, you can raise your hand and someone from the back will provide a Bible for you. Um, and if everyone could stand for the reading of God's word. This is Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This is the word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. It's good to gather with you this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Uh, Sorry, it's a little balmy in here this morning. They uh, switched the heat over in an old school, and this is where we're at. So, uh, well, hopefully it'll be a little bit better better next week. But it's good to be with you this morning uh, on this fall day to open up God's Word together. Uh, I know we have this in the bulletin every week, but just wanted to remind you of it this morning. There's a little half sheet of paper uh, in your bulletin that we put in there every week. Uh, for the purpose for you to be able to take notes as God's word is preached, uh, because we believe that God's word is not only important for you today as you sit and listen, but that you can process through it throughout the week as you engage in community uh, with with one another. Um, and so, uh, just be be uh, that's a, for you to use during the sermon, so you can track what's what's going on and hopefully uh, take it and reflect on it throughout the week as well. But as we jump into God's word this morning, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we give you thanks that we can come and gather here on this October Sunday morning. I pray, God, that you would just do uh, two simple things this morning. God, I pray that you would restore us where we need restoration, and I pray you'd revive us where we need to be revived. God, I know that people are coming in this morning from all different places, all different types of weeks that have taken place. There's a lot going on in our world right now. There's a lot going on in our country right now. And God, I just pray that you'd bring restoration, that you'd bring revival even here in this room this morning. Jesus, we need you. And so we just ask you to be present with us this morning, that we might heed your words, and by heeding your words, live lives that are glorifying to you. And so we give this time to you, and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Uh, when I was a, uh, a sophomore in college, I lived in an on-campus apartment with three of my closest friends. And uh, we didn't have, we had a TV, but we didn't have cable. And so we had a TV and a DVD player and an N64. And so when we had free time, if we were hanging out or whatever, what that consisted of was a whole lot of Mario Kart, uh, GoldenEye, and watching DVDs. And so we would sit there and do that. And sometimes we just wanted to watch a little something while we were eating dinner or lunch, uh, but because we didn't have cable. And remember, this is like 2000, 2001. So this is pre-Netflix. I know that's shocking for some of you, 
There was a time when Netflix did not exist, uh, but this was pre-Netflix, so we would sometimes just start a movie, like in the middle of it, on one of our favorite scenes and just watch it for a few minutes. I don't know how many times I've seen The Matrix from the point where Neo and Trinity walk into the building to try and rescue Morpheus. I could, and then oftentimes we just watch the whole rest of the movie after that, but uh, that's where we would start often. We would watch Braveheart and start right where William Wallace is giving his famous speech to the soldiers before they go engage the English soldiers. And it's probably one of the most epic scenes in all of film. You probably have heard the lines even if you haven't seen the movie. He says, run and you'll live at least a while. And dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance just one chance to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom. It's epic. It's an epic scene in the movie. And there's so many movies that we could think of where there's a group of people that are in the midst of a challenging situation and someone comes at just the right time to speak a word of encouragement to them, to help them to continue to move forward in whatever it is they need to move forward in. You know, there's something powerful about words of encouragement spoken to us by someone, though, who's not removed from our situation, who isn't removed from the difficulty that we find ourselves in, but is in the midst of it with us. Someone who's in the fight with us, who understands what it is that we're going through or what we're about to go through. As we dive into our text today, we see Paul doing just that for the Philippians. He's shared about the reality and the trajectory of his own life and how he's viewing his life and viewing his suffering as he sits in a Roman prison for preaching Jesus. We saw last week that he said to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he was sharing that out of his own life, but now he enters into the reality of the Philippians' lives to say, this is for you too. This is for you also. See, here's the deal. You and I find ourselves in an increasingly fractured world. I mean, just yesterday we saw, again, tragedy in our country with someone walking into a synagogue and killing people because they don't like them, because hate is raging through them. Just even the past week in Jeffersontown, Kentucky, right outside Louisville, a man sought to go into an African-American church and shoot people there, couldn't get in, so he went to a grocery store and shot some people there out of hate. There's a fracturing in our country. There's hostility in our country right now. There's a brokenness increasing all over the world. It's all around us as the world is set more and more against God and his ways. See, the false kingdom of this world has not stopped. It will not relent in seeking to overthrow the kingdom of God. Now, the good news is, is that we know that that's not possible. God's kingdom will not be defeated But while we may know that cognitively to be true, at different moments and snapshots, even just within our own lives in particular, it may be hard to believe that. There may be moments where it's hard to take that to heart or or orient our lives around the goodness and faithfulness of God. That was the reality for the Philippians. It's why Paul is writing what he writes to them in the text that we're going to look at today. And it's why you and I need to pay attention to what Paul says to them Because by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's speaking to us as well. Because here's the deal. If following Jesus isn't hard for you right now, at some point it will be in the future. See, what Paul is calling us to is that in the midst of adverse life, adverse world, adverse circumstances, he's calling us to live a worthy life because we have a worthy 
Savior, to live a worthy life because we have a worthy Savior. And so my hope is, is that we sit, as we sit under the preaching of God's word this morning, that God would compel us, that he would unite us together to do just that, to live worthy lives. And listen, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'm glad that you're here this morning, that you came either through the invitation of a friend or maybe you're checking out church or who Jesus is. My hope for you is that you would see the kind of life Jesus calls us to and that you would join with us as you join to our Savior. So let's go ahead and jump into Philippians chapter 1 this morning and may God bless the preaching of his word. Our text today really flows out of what we looked at last week. If you didn't get a chance to listen to the sermon last week, just encourage you to go online. We have an app as well you can download to listen to the sermons from the previous weeks. But this really ties into what Paul has been talking about. But here, like I said, he's getting a little bit more practical, a little bit more personal with the Philippians. There's three main points for what we're going to look at today. And so if you are taking notes, you can write these down. Paul's calling us to stay focused, stand firm, and don't be scared. Stay focused, stand firm, and don't be scared. Listen, if you want to live a worthy life because you have a worthy Savior, in order for you to do that, it's going to require those three things. So let's dive into the first point. Stay focused. Look at verse 27 again. Let me just read it again for us. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, Paul has just told them that he's confident that he's going to come to them. He's, he's confident that God is going to allow him to get out of prison and continue to live for Christ so that he can encourage the Philippians to live for Christ. But what he doesn't want them to do is just kind of sit around and wait for that. He, what he's trying to communicate here to them to get, is by, through this clear command is, listen, no matter what happens to me, no matter when I might come to you, what I want for you is to live lives that are pleasing to God, to live lives that are glorifying to God and worthy of his gospel. Now at Sojourn, we preach from the English Standard Version of the Bible, the ESV, but I think the ESV misses something here in its translation of the Greek uh, to English. In this, first, in this first sentence here, what Paul is saying, the word that's even used in the original language, is that he is calling us to be citizens worthy of the gospel. Citizens who are worthy of the gospel. Now, why does he talk about being citizens who are worthy of the gospel? Well, we need to understand something about the context of where the Philippians find themselves. See, the Philippian church, this small church that's gathered in this Roman colony, this Roman city, is in a place where Roman citizenship is, is really important. People pride themselves on it. They celebrate it. Oftentimes at any public gathering of people in Philippi, they would praise the name of Caesar. And so it was something that the, the whole area held highly. It was high nationalism going on in Philippi. And so what Paul is saying here when he's talking about being citizens that are worthy of the gospel is this. Listen, this is where you are but it isn't who you are. Sure, it's where you are, but it isn't who you are. And we need to understand that even now in 2018, the same thing takes place around us. And the world we live in is constantly going to seek to define you, 
to identify you, to give you an identity, to define who you are, to put you in a particular box, to think a certain way. And it can be based off of all different aspects of your life, what you do for a living, who you are as a person, all those things. They're going to seek to put definition on you. What Paul is seeking to remind us of this morning is that it's Christ who defines you, not the world. If you're in Christ, you are now a citizen of the kingdom of God, first and foremost, above all earthly kingdoms. So, don't identify primarily with Rome, but your Savior. Look to Christ, not Caesar, for your model of righteous living. So for us this morning, we have to ask ourselves, if you take a look at your life, your words, your thoughts, your deeds— Do you identify more with your country and culture or your Christ? Do you identify more with your country and culture or your Christ? Now, this doesn't mean that we're saying we're supposed to be anti-country or anti-culture. What it means is, is that all of those things have to take their cues from Christ, who alone is king, not the other way around. With the citizenship that's rooted in heaven, brought about through faith in the person and work of Christ, his life, his death, and resurrection, Paul calls them, he calls us to live a life worthy, not of our country or the kingdom of this world, but worthy of the gospel and the kingdom of God. So what does he mean by a manner of life worthy of the gospel? The word worthy means that something is of value, that it's worth recognition, that we should pay attention to it. But let's be careful here because what Paul isn't saying is that we're called to live a life in a certain way so that we are worthy to receive the benefits of the good news of the gospel. Because the reality is you aren't worthy of the blessings of the gospel. Every person who has ever walked this earth, aside from one, is born into the world a rebel. We evidence this the first time we assert our will and our desires against God's will and his design. We seek to create and occupy our own kingdoms, to sit on the throne of our own lives, where we create our own laws about what's good and what's right and how we should live and how people should live and interact with us. And, and because we believe ourselves to be in that position of authority, even within our own lives, when someone violates the laws of our kingdom, we get angry. We demand justice, and we think we're righteous in doing so. It could be something that happens at your home, and your kids don't set the table correctly, or laundry isn't put away in the way that you would like, or someone cuts you off in traffic, or invades your space, or interrupts your me time. You feel that kingdom rising up within you. Man, you didn't do it the way that I demand you to do it. But see, there's only one true king, and there's only one true kingdom. And because he is the one true king of the one true kingdom, he is right and just in destroying all other propped up puppet kingdoms of our lives. But see, our God is not only full of justice, he's also full of mercy and grace. This is how he describes himself in the book of Exodus. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. God is both about justice and mercy. He won't allow these kingdoms to continue to exist, but he extends grace to rescue us from that. And the way that he's done that is the good news of the gospel. God sent his son to us as one of us to rescue us from our sin, to rescue us from ourselves. Jesus went to a Roman cross. He took on the sin and shame of this world so that those who were unworthy could be given worth. That those who had no identity could have a lasting identity in and through Jesus. See, church, this is not a call for you to make yourself worthy of Christ and his love. God gives you that love. He lavishes that love on you. That's not a call for you to obey in order to gain love. We obey now because we live in a position from and from a position of love. See, brothers and sisters, Christ is of an infinite worth. And so this is a call for us to live life like he is of infinite worth. See, a life worthy of the gospel is a life that's been transformed by the gospel. A life that testifies to the reality of saving grace. That once you were lost, but now you're found. Once you were dead, but are now alive. A life worthy of the gospel is a life that evidences to the world around us that Jesus is our only hope. It's a life that says Jesus is real and he's Lord and Jesus matters and he has to be considered and he has to be responded to. It's a life that says that Jesus can't be ignored and neither can his message. It's a life that by its sheer existence and lifestyle is lovingly confrontational because it's so distinct from the rest of the world. That how you live your life is so distinct from the rest of the world, that you live differently, that you love differently, that you value different things than a life that hasn't yet been invaded by Christ. If you look down to verse 28, Paul basically says that to us, that it it, it testifies in this kind of confrontational way. He says, this is a clear sign. When you live this way, it's a clear sign to them, meaning the rest of the world of their destruction, but of your salvation. When we live lives that are worthy of the gospel, it draws a line in the sand to say, look, we can't be in both kingdoms. And so come to the kingdom that is the one true kingdom. See, what Paul is calling the Philippians to, what he's calling us to to, is live to show Jesus' worth. Live to show Jesus' worth. Live to show his worth to a world that so desperately needs him. That we don't just say with our lips, but show with our lives that Jesus is better. This idea in verse 27 of only let your manner of life be worthy as as citizens, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This idea of living is really the idea, the sense of walking. In Hebrew culture, walking was used to describe the way we should live. And And there's two aspects to walking, right? I mean, walking is movement, and it's just a regular part of your life. If you have healthy legs, then that's something you're going to do often, is walk from place to place, around your house, around just in your existence. And so the the idea that it's communicating is that is walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Live in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's a call to live the day-to-day of your life here on earth as sojourners and citizens of the kingdom of God. That as you move forward in life, move forward to make much of Jesus in the everyday moments of your life, whatever relationships that you find yourself in, in your work environment, 
as you engage in culture, the different things that are going on in the world around us, that you would engage in such a way, that you would live in such a way in those everyday, ordinary moments of life, but do so with gospel intentionality. But listen, this isn't just the big things of life, it's the little things of life. What encourages us as pastors and shepherds of this church as we hear what's going on in your life, as we give thanks to God for you, we're encouraged by how you're doing in those high moments of life, those mountaintop experiences, and also how you're navigating through the difficult low moments of life. Those are encouraging to us, but what's really encouraging to us is how you're living for Jesus at 630 in the morning as you sit in traffic. As you get on that conference call with a bunch of people that you don't care for, as you're trying to get dinner on the table with screaming kids and putting them to bed, as your roommate once again has left dirty dishes in the sink. Man, how are you living for Jesus in those moments? How are you living a life worthy of the gospel in those moments? But see, notice what Paul doesn't do. He doesn't say, look, here's, I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel, so here's a list of things to do. Now, what Paul does is what he does over and over again for us. He just presents Jesus to us. He presents Christ to us, saying, look, Jesus is worthy of following. He's worthy of following in every aspect of all of your life, so walk with him. Walk for him as a sojourner in a place that isn't your home, as a citizen of the kingdom of God. And there's a tenaciousness to the kind of life that Paul is calling us to live, and it's not something we move on from. Paul's not amped up and like, if you're a new follower of Christ, this is the kind of life that you need to live as you're all fired up for Jesus, but over time you can kind of tone it down a little bit. That's okay. No, what Paul's describing here is what it means to be a disciple of Christ, what it means to follow Jesus each and every moment of every day. Because listen, you live in a world that is calling you constantly to revoke your citizenship. You, you live in a world that's calling you to set aside your citizenship, your passport to the kingdom of heaven, to put it away, to give it away, so that you can involve yourself more fully in the kingdom of this world. It's calling you to revoke it. It preaches at you. It pleads with you. It constantly is speaking to you. So Paul's saying, stay focused. Stay focused on the life that your king has called you to. Not anyone else, not anything else. A life worthy of the gospel that has saved you and is now transforming you. Stay focused. But in order for you and for me to stay focused, Paul gives us our second point. We need to stand firm. We need to stand firm. This idea of standing firm that we see at the end of verse 27 is about not compromising, not giving ground. It's a a call not to back down, not to give in. The sense that Paul is seeking to convey is a a deep, planted rootedness, a remaining steadfast, unwavering. It's like a well-built lighthouse on the edge of the shore that's being battered by storms but continues to remain shining forth its light in the midst of the storm. And that's really his point. Stay focused. Yes, continue to follow Jesus, but in order for you to do that, you have to stand firm. You have to remain steadfast for a reason. Not just so you can remain standing, but so that you can continue to shine the light of the good news of Jesus to the world around you, to display the glory of God in the darkness and the desperateness of the world we live in. And that's what he says in verse 27, strive for the faith of the gospel, stand firm in order to strive for the faith of the gospel. 
Striving here has that, that idea of an athlete competing when he or she is engaged in a competition. There's strenuous activity. It's challenging, but there's a goal in mind. And the goal is to, to leave it all out there, to leave it all out on the field, to make much of Jesus, to live lives that display his surpassing worth to a weary world so that more people might experience restoring, radical, redeeming grace. And this idea here of standing firm, of not backing down, it's that wartime mentality. It's battle language. Because the kingdom of this world seeks to constantly assault the kingdom of God. And so Paul's calling us, he's calling us to fight for the gospel in a world that preaches a false gospel. But this idea of fighting for the gospel, contending for the gospel, is not fighting against others. When I was in college, I think I mentioned this last week, I was a communications major, and so one of the classes that I took was a class called Argumentation. And and in this class, we really learned what argumentation truly is. Argumentation is this idea of how do you craft an idea in such a way to communicate it, to defend it and articulate it in such a way that someone would be compelled to believe it and come to your side in the midst of that. That's what it means to present an argument. And so to have argumentation, we, we should want to defend truth. We should want to articulate our faith. That's what Paul does. That's why he's sitting in prison. It was really clear that Paul believed in Jesus, that he was the only way for someone to be reconciled to God. And so he was defending truth. He was articulating the gospel. But we oftentimes don't think of arguments that way. We think of arguments like, I'm going to take you out. Like, I'm going to win this. I'm going to crush you in my presentation of the argument. But listen, the gospel is offensive. That doesn't mean you need to be offensive. Let the gospel offend in and of itself for what it is as you call people to follow Jesus. And so as we seek to fight for the gospel, as we seek to defend truth, this is a call not to win more theological arguments, not to win more apologetic debates for the sake of winning. It's for the sake of seeing people cross from death to life, rescued from an eternity in hell to be with our Savior. But notice something else Paul says in this verse that's absolutely essential for us. If we're going to stay focused, and we're going to do so by standing firm in the midst of a world and a culture that seeks to pull us away from Christ, we have to do it standing side by side with one another. You cannot do this alone. The life that God has called you to, to live in such a way that displays the worthiness of Jesus, to live as citizens of the kingdom of God, seeking to show the world how great Christ is, to glorify him, and the entirety of your life is not meant to be done as a solo project. The life that Jesus calls you to is a community project, united together under the leadership and empowerment of the Holy Spirit with one mind, with one focus. Like I said earlier, there's power in encouragement that comes from people who aren't distant from you, but are actually in the midst of the fight with you, who understand what it looks like to find themselves in the challenges that you find yourself in. It's encouraging to have someone by your side, like men and women in the heat of battle, working together, knowing that someone's on my right and someone's on my left as we seek to advance forward. Let me give you one caution, one caveat here, because I think we can hear the words side by side and we can just think task, right? So we think relationally, we often think either side by side or face to face. And so side by side, I think we can oftentimes just think about a task-oriented relationship. And I hear guys talk about this often. 
Well, like men, they like to do relationships doing something side by side with one another, and that's where real relationship takes place. Maybe. Maybe it does. But if you're side by side and you don't know the person next to you, like actually really know those people, then it won't matter much when challenges come. See, Paul's call to stay focused, Paul's call to stand firm, striving side by side for the gospel, is a call to know and be known. To know and be known as you strive for the faith of the gospel in the lives of those around you. Because here's the deal. When there's people that are side by side with you, that know you and you know them, you're able to watch out for one another's blind spots. If I'm, my attention's over here and I'm focused over here doing something and I can't see what's happening on my right side, in my blind spot, but I have a brother or a sister over here that knows where I struggle, that knows where I might falter or fail, they can be on guard for me. And I can do the same for them. I have to know the person next to me and they need to know me. See, what Paul is talking about here is the difference between sympathy and empathy. But I can sympathize with you. I can say, man, that sounds hard. Or I can empathize with you. I can enter into what it is that you're going through. It's the difference between counsel and camaraderie. I can give good counsel. I can encourage you. I can speak into your life, but I can do so at a distance and then bounce. I can, I can roll out and leave you there to figure it out on your own. Camaraderie is like, I'm rolling up my sleeves. We're diving in together, and I'm not going anywhere because I need you just as much as you need me. And I think that's the way that God's wired us. We're created for relationship. We're created for partnership, but a partnership that exists in close proximity, not at an arm's length either literally or figuratively. See, before sin entered into the world, God made it clear that relationship and partnership was necessary and for our good. Do, do we recognize that? Before sin entered into the world, God said it's not good for you to be alone. But even though our world is now broken, it's sin-stained, the reality hasn't changed. Sure, sin affects relationships. It affects relationships, but it doesn't remove the need for them. And so I would argue all the more necessary now because of sin, because we find ourselves as sojourners, as citizens of heaven, living in a world that's set against heaven. We need people around us who are in the fight with us, who truly know what's going on in our life. And listen, this is universal. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been following Jesus. All of us need someone by our side. And I think Paul's emphasizing this point of unity and relationship to the Philippians to stay focused, to stand firm. He's, he's saying we need to do this together because they're experiencing relational difficulty. There's a fracturing occurring. They, the pressures of life, the pressures of ministry are starting to cause breaking in the midst of the community. And so he's calling them back to what they need most. And see, that's exactly what the enemy seeks to do. The enemy always seeks to break into relationships and tear them apart to create disunity, to create division, that we wouldn't believe the best in one another, but we would assume the worst. That we would assign motives to each other and we have no idea what each other's motives actually are. We see that in the very first relationship as a slithering serpent came into the garden, he divided the first relationship between man and woman and between human beings and God. And he continues to do that today among God's people. You see, when we fight with one another, when we 
come at each other, when we don't believe the best in one another, when we criticize more than we encourage and help one another, we're not a focused people. We're distracted people. And when we're not focused, we're not living lives that are glorifying to our God and King. And so we have to come and think about how are we living lives with one another, worthy lives with each other. So let me just ask you, how are you doing in this? How are you doing in striving side by side with others? People are going to step on your toes. They're going to offend you. They're going to hurt you. But as we seek to reconcile with one another and evidence God's grace to the world, we can be an unstoppable force to make much of Jesus. So how are you doing with this? Does anyone actually know what you struggle with when it comes to your faith, your relationship with Christ? If you're going to falter, if you're going to fail, does anyone know what those blind spots are? They're going to take you out. And I know it's hard for some of us because some of you have done this. You've opened up your life. You've shared those struggle points. You've shared those blind spots with people in community, and you've been crushed for doing it. And some of you have done the crushing. So there's opportunity for forgiveness. There's opportunity for grace. There's opportunity for reconciliation in those moments. But listen to me, you cannot afford not to have this in your life. I know there's pain in relationship. I know there's pain in difficulty. But let me encourage you, don't set aside a bad, because of a bad experience, set aside relationship altogether. You need people in your life so that you can stay focused, so that you can stand firm. So do you need to ask someone to be this kind of friend to you? Man, church, can we pursue this together? Can we pray for this? Really believing that we are better together than we are alone. And Paul's calling the Philippians, and he's calling us to stay focused, to stand firm in a world that is set against them and their king. He's calling us to be who we are, where we are together. But he also knows that striving to live as heavenly citizens in a foreign land is costly. Which leads to our last point, don't be scared. Don't be scared. Paul knows that when he calls us to walk faithfully with Jesus, when he calls us to live worthy lives that display the worth of Christ, it's going to be met with challenge. Living for Christ and his glory, seeking to advance his gospel in a world that has a different worldview is going to bring about suffering in your life. It's going to bring about challenge in your life. And so Paul seeks to encourage. He's saying, listen, don't be frightened. Don't be scared in the midst of that. Why? Because it's been granted to you not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for his sake. So what we need to understand in the midst of this text as we look at these verses here is that his encouragement isn't about suffering in general. And that suffering in general is a regular part of our lives in a broken world. We see that in lots of places in Scripture. We can go to Romans 8 and see the, the groaning of creation that we find ourselves in. But what he's talking about here is suffering that comes about as a result of living in a world that's hostile to Christ. But did you catch what he said here? It's been granted to you. Like God has gifted you faith in Christ and he's gifted you suffering for Christ. He's given this to you. Now, how in the world can Paul say that it's a gift to suffer for Jesus? Because in our suffering, 
for Christ. We give evidence to what we say with our mouths and show with our lives that Christ is our greatest treasure and that nothing else the world offers, not even ease and comfort, is worth setting aside the worthiness of our Savior. And countless men and women throughout history have done just that, given the chance to renounce Christ or be thrown in jail, given the chance to renounce Christ or be tortured, given the chance to renounce Christ or be killed, have time and time again chosen Christ, even as they have been chosen in Christ. And in doing so, in the midst of their suffering, even to the point of death, they magnify the name and worth of their Savior who died for them. As one pastor writes, the path to glorification for us leads through the suffering of the cross. And suffering for Christ is actually an evidence of God's grace to your life. It's an evidence of God's grace because what God shows us as he gifts us suffering, as he grants that we would suffer for Jesus, is that he's trying and seeking to make us more like Jesus. Tearing away the things of this world so we might only have Christ the one who the author of Hebrews says learned obedience through suffering. Now my guess is in this moment two things might be happening in your head and your heart right now. You either feel guilty because your life doesn't look like that or you feel, fear, you feel fearful because you're afraid your, might, your life might look like that. You're thinking, man, I don't, I don't match up. I don't experience much suffering, feel guilt, or I don't want to experience suffering. But if that's where you're at right now, then I just encourage you to do what all of us constantly need to do. We can encourage one another too is to take our eyes off of us and set them on our Savior. For whose sake we do this, for the sake of Christ. I love reading in the book of Acts. It's always a challenge to me that you see the apostles and the early disciples being thrown in prison, being tortured and beaten for preaching Jesus. And what do they do when they get out of jail? They're like, yes, I got to suffer for Jesus. I was worthy to suffer for Jesus. Someone actually knows that I love Jesus more than this world. And they count it as worth to suffer for the worthiness of their Savior. Now, we currently live in a country that has, uh, for the most part, freedom of religion. I mean, we're gathered in a public school right now. And we're not fearful that the government is going to come in right now and cause us to leave or throw us in jail for gathering here on a Sunday morning. We, we live in a place that, that articulates a desire to have this freedom to worship as you desire. And so that does change our experience of suffering. Different from other brothers and sisters that live in countries and places where that's not true for them. It changes our experience of suffering for now. I really believe that our country more and more is headed to a place that though in our founding documents it says that we have this freedom, is going to continue to take away those freedoms. And so as we seek to follow Jesus, we're going to experience increased persecution. We're going to experience increased suffering if we're genuinely following Christ. There's going to be an opportunity, a temptation that's going to come our way to kind of hold on to Jesus, but to hold on to something else too. Hey, just bow down to the gold statue, eat our food, and you'll be good to go. You can do what you want. And so we'll be tempted in those moments. Well, if I just bow down, it's no big deal. I can still hold on to Christ. Or we can be like Daniel and his friends and stand up and say, no, I can't. I mean, I'll suffer whatever consequences come my way. 
See, I think we need to be on alert for this because it's going to come in different ways. It's going to be masked. It's going to be disguised. Man, the enemy's wily. He knows how to trick and deceive. He's the master of lies, the father of lies. And so we need to be alert. We need to stay focused. We need to stand firm. We need to help each other. See, when we're being tempted to follow away from following Jesus. But even now, even though we exist in this time period right now where we can still gather in a public school and proclaim the name of Christ, even now we can still experience suffering for following Jesus. We still should experience it at some level in our lives. Because I think an additional way to look at this when it says that we suffer for Christ, even as Paul is suffering for Christ, is also as we live a sacrificial life. That there's a real cost to following Christ, and we're going to talk a whole lot more about that in Philippians chapter 3. But what that might mean for you now, what I'll say about it now is this, that there's going to be times when you are challenged to have to say no to something the world is offering you in order to say yes to Jesus. The world's going to offer you something that even seems good. But that moment comes when you have to say no to that in order to be faithful to Jesus. It might look like sharing the gospel with your neighbor or your family or your coworker or your friend, knowing that they might not only reject your Savior, but also reject you. And so let me ask you, are there things in your life right now that you are saying no to in order to say yes to Jesus? Or is it the other way around? The world will offer you all kinds of promises. The promises to make you happy, promises to make you healthy, promises to make you whole. But in the end, it's all snake oil that leads to death. It sounds good, it looks good, but it's worthless. Because there is only one living and lasting fountain of living water, and his name is Jesus. So listen, temporary pleasure is not worth the eternal torment you'll receive as a consequence for your rebellion. But temporary suffering for following Jesus is well worth the eternal weight of glory that you'll experience when you see your Savior face to face. You see, Paul knows we have to count the cost. But he believes that if we know the worthiness of Christ, that we know how great of a treasure Jesus is, everything else will pale in comparison And so he calls us, stay focused. Stay focused on Christ and the life he's called you to. Stand firm. Don't back down. Don't sacrifice Christ and put him to the side. Don't set him on the shelf in your life and do so side by side. Stand firm and don't be scared. Jesus has you. Jesus has you and he is worthy and he is worth it. And see, when you do this, it's not only a sign for those who oppose Jesus, as we saw in verse 28, it's also a testimony to your own soul that you can say to yourself, I did the hard thing I knew Jesus wanted me to do. Brothers and sisters, may we never forget that the enemy does not win. Jesus declared that the gates of hell will not prevail over God's people, over the church. Jesus wins. And so knowing that, having confidence in that, maybe the best thing we can do as an application from this sermon is to pray. To pray for the global church. To go on a website like opendoors.com and learn about what's going on in the global church that many of our brothers and sisters are experiencing real, physical, overt suffering and persecution right now for their faith and pray for them that they would stay focused, that they would stand firm, that they wouldn't be scared. We can pray for the American church 
that as temptation comes for us to kind of hold a little bit onto Jesus and a whole lot onto other things, that we would pray that the American church would stay faithful and pure and true, to stay focused, to stand firm and not be scared, that we'd pray that for our own church, that that would be our experience, that we'd pray it for our own lives, that you would stay focused, stand firm, and not be scared. Brothers and sisters, let's live worthy lives because we indeed have a worthy Savior. A gift of grace and opportunity to declare the worthiness of Jesus every week is by taking communion. See, as we get up out of our seats to come forward, not under compulsion, but willingly, coming to the table to eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. It's a gift of grace because in it we're given a chance to stay focused. We're given a chance to stand firm. We're given a chance to not be scared. And so as we eat this meal, we declare that Jesus is worthy. We image the reality of our lives. We walk forward, leaving everything else behind to partake of Christ. Eating the bread, a picture of Christ's body broken for us. Eating, drinking the cup, a picture of Christ's blood shed for us. See, in and of itself, the communion meal can be an act of faith and repentance. So come forward today to declare the worth of Jesus and be refreshed in his grace. And if you're not a follower of Christ, again, we're so glad that you're here this morning, but what you've heard this morning is what the life that Jesus is calling you to. And so we would just ask this morning that you not come to the table to eat the bread and drink the cup, but that you would take Christ today. But realize there's a cost to following Jesus. It's a call to come and die, to lay your old life aside, to follow after the one who lives now and forever and gives life to you. And so if you don't yet know Christ, we want you to know him. You can say right now in your seat as you pray to God, you can ask him to redeem you, ask him to save you. And then let somebody around you know, let somebody in this community know so that we can come alongside of you, side by side, and you with us, so we can pursue Christ together. Those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables in the front. There's a few tables in the back as well. Tear off a piece of bread, take a cup to drink, and what Christ, our worthy Savior, has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, I just pray that this would be true for us as a church, as a people, as individuals. Would you, God, by your grace and by your Spirit, empower us to stay focused, empower us to stand firm, empower us to not be scared so that we can live worthy lives because you are a worthy Savior. Jesus, help us to set our gaze on you. Help us to set our mind on you, our hearts on you. That we would count everything else as lost compared to knowing you and help us to help one another to do that. God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for these men and women here that have come together to do just that. Lord, I'm grateful for what you are doing and hopeful for what you'll continue to do. So we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do a transforming work for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Come forward whenever you're ready.